Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, The Grey Man. But first, your true crime headlines. 21-year-old Ahmad Alyssa, the suspect accused of opening fire Monday afternoon at the King Super's grocery store in Boulder, Colorado, is facing 10 counts of murder in the first degree. Police took the suspect into custody at the store Monday afternoon, less than an hour after panicked 911 callers told dispatchers of the killings unfolding in the store. Alyssa, who was shot in his right leg Monday, was booked Tuesday into the county jail after being treated at a hospital for his wounds. The motive for the killings is not yet known. Supermarket employees told investigators that the massacre began when Alyssa shot a man multiple times in the parking lot before going inside the grocery store. Another person was found shot in a vehicle next to a car registered to the suspect's brother. The gunfire sent terrified customers and employees scrambling for cover, fleeing the store and calling 911. One caller said that the suspect opened fire out of the window of his vehicle. Others called to say that they were hiding inside the store. Maggie Montoya, a pharmacy tech at the store, told CNN's Anderson Cooper that she was signing people up for COVID-19 vaccinations when she heard the first shot, and her store manager yelled that there was an active shooter. Montoya and a fellow pharmacist then ran into a counseling room and took cover under a desk. The two of them called 911 and hid there for about an hour. SWAT officers carrying ballistic shields slowly approached the store while others escorted frightened people away from the building. Customers and employees fled the building through a back loading dock to safety. Others fled to nearby shops. Montoya and her co-worker had no idea how close the shooter had been until they heard police announce that they had the building surrounded and heard the suspect respond next to the pharmacy. Montoya said that they found his weapons there and that she heard the shooter say, I surrender, I'm naked. Witnesses described the shooter as having a black AR-15 style gun and wearing blue jeans and body armor. By the time he was taken into custody, Alyssa had been struck by a bullet that passed through his leg. He had removed most of his clothing and was dressed only in shorts. Inside the store, police found the gun, a tactical vest, a semi-automatic handgun, and his bloodied clothing. Among his 10 victims was 51-year-old officer Eric Talley, who had been with the force since 2010. He was the first to arrive on the scene. The other victims were 20-year-old Denny Stong, 23-year-old Nevin Stanisic, 25-year-old Ricky Olds, 49-year-old Trelana Bartkowiak, 59-year-old Suzanne Fountain, 51-year-old Terry Laker, 61-year-old Kevin Mahoney, 62-year-old Lynn Murray, and 65-year-old Jody Waters. Laker, Olds, and Stong were employees at the supermarket. The attack was the nation's deadliest mass shooting since the 2019 attack on a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, 
where a gunman killed 22 people in a rampage that police said targeted Mexicans. Monday's attack follows the March 16th shooting last week in Atlanta that left eight people dead at three massage businesses. The attacks follow a lull in mass killings during the coronavirus pandemic in 2020, which saw the smallest number of such attacks in eight years. A man charged with beating to death a New Jersey resident who he says sexually abused him as a child now claims that he's killed a total of 16 people, including his ex-wife and three others found dead near a New Mexico airport. Alec Gutierrez, an assistant prosecutor in Gloucester County, New Jersey, said at a detention hearing Friday that the suspect, 47-year-old Sean Lannon, said that he killed the four whose remains were found in a vehicle and 11 other individuals in New Mexico. Gutierrez said Lannon had confessed to luring several victims to a home in New Mexico and dismembering some of them. Authorities said in court documents that Lannon made the admission in a phone call to a relative, who then told investigators that he expressed remorse. Police Lieutenant David Chavez in Lannon's hometown of Grants, New Mexico said authorities have no indication that Lannon's claims about the 11 other killings are true and that they aren't aware of any missing person or homicide reports that would fit his narrative. The case began on March 5th, when the bodies of Lannon's ex-wife and three other people were found in a vehicle in a parking garage at Albuquerque International Sunport, New Mexico's largest airport. The victims were identified as 39-year-old Jennifer Lannon, 21-year-old Matthew Miller, 40-year-old Justin Mata, and 60-year-old Randall Apostolon. It is not clear how they were killed, Chris Whitman, Jennifer Lannon's brother, said that Sean Lannon told the family in January that Jennifer had run off with some friends, possibly to Arizona. On March 8th, three days after the remains were found in New Mexico, the body of 66-year-old Michael Debkowski was discovered in his New Jersey home after a welfare check. Sean Lannon is accused of breaking in and beating him to death with a hammer. At this time, Lannon has been charged only with Debkowski's killing. His lawyer claims that his client was provoked. An Arizona woman has been arrested after allegedly shooting and killing her husband, according to Phoenix police. Authorities say that 50-year-old Brandon Smith called police around 2 a.m. on Sunday and stated that his wife, 52-year-old Diane Smith had shot him and that she was still armed in the family's home. Police and fire crews arrived on the scene and Diane Smith was taken into custody. Brandon Smith was rushed to a hospital in critical condition and was later pronounced dead. Authorities said the couple's 14-year-old daughter was in the home at the time but was uninjured. Police also found a dead dog with apparent gunshot wounds in the living room. The couple's daughter told police that the gunshots woke her up. When she left her bedroom, she said she saw her father lying on the ground with apparent gunshot wounds. 
She said that her mother, who was holding a rifle, told her that she thought her husband was an intruder. After police took Diane Smith into custody, she told them that two people tried to break into her home and kill her. During her interview with police, Smith said that she had been married to the victim for 13 years. She told investigators that she believed that her husband and his family were plotting to kill her. She reported being in the residence and hearing the victim and approximately 15 people, quote, singing music lyrics and saying, quote, they were going to shoot her and cut off her legs. Smith told police that she then took an assault rifle from the bedroom. All the lights were off, she said, when four people rushed towards her and she fired the rifle. The couple's daughter said that she did not see anyone else in the residence, but her mother with the rifle and her father bleeding on the floor. The victim's family reported that they had been fearful that Diane Smith would hurt him one day. In the past, they had attempted to have Smith committed, implying mental health issues. Diane Smith has been charged with second-degree murder and cruelty to animals. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, The Gray Man. But first, a quick break. Whether I'm taking a walk around my neighborhood, running errands, or venturing out on my own, I always want to feel safe. That's why I never leave the house without my Birdie. Birdie is a personal safety alarm designed to be easy to carry and simple to use. When you activate your Birdie with a quick pull, the alarm will emit a loud 130 decibel siren and flashing strobe light to help deter an attack. Unlike pepper spray or other deterrents, Birdie is no danger to you. Birdie goes wherever you go. The alarm comes in multiple colors and has a brass keychain so that you can attach it to your keys or your bag. I keep one Birdie in my car, one in my apartment, and one on my keys, and I'm giving a Birdie to every woman I know. Over 300,000 Birdie alarms have been sold and they have thousands of five-star reviews. Join the flock today for a safer tomorrow. Right now, She's Birdie is offering our listeners 15% off their first purchase when they go to she'sbirdie.com slash murderminute. That's She's Birdie spelled S-H-E-S-B-I-R-D-I-E dot com slash murderminute for 15% off your first purchase. That's she'sbirdie.com slash murderminute. We all have our guilty pleasures. Whether it's a TV series that you've binge-watched a dozen times, or that album you love to listen to on repeat, some things just get better the more you play them. And one thing I never get tired of playing is Best Fiends. Best Fiends is the app that engages my brain with challenging but fun puzzle games, thousands of levels, and new ones added all the time. The game is simple and fun. The good guys are the bugs, and the bad guys are the slugs. Complete the puzzles to defeat the slugs, collecting keys and unlocking new fiends along the way, like Brittle the Housefly, Edward the Mosquito, 
Gordon the Scorpion, and my best fiend, Pop the Axolotl. I've cleared hundreds of levels already, and the more I play, the more fun it gets. And with new monthly updates, themed challenges, and holiday puzzles, there's always one more level, and the adventure never gets old. So the next time you need a break from the news cycle or run out of shows to binge watch, download Best Fiends free. It's hours of fun at your fingertips and can even be played offline. This game has 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews for a reason. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Welcome back to Murder Minute. In November of 1934, Delia Flanagan Budd received an anonymous letter. Her 10-year-old daughter, Grace Budd, had been missing for six years after she was abducted by a man who called himself Frank Howard. The letter read, quote, My dear Mrs. Budd, in 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco to Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he and two others went ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At that time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was from $1 to $3 a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under 12 were sold to the butchers to be cut up and sold for food in order to keep others from starving. A boy or girl under 14 was not safe in the street. You could go in any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body, and sold as veal cutlet, brought the highest price. John stayed there so long, he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven, one eleven, took them to his home, stripped them naked, tied them in a closet, then burned everything they had on. Several times every day and night he spanked them, tortured them, to make their meat good and tender. First he killed the 11-year-old boy, because he had the fattest ass, and of course, the most meat on it. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten, except head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven, all of his ass boiled, broiled, fried, stewed. The little boy was next, went the same way. At that time, I was living at 409 East 100th Street, rear, right side. He told me so often how good human flesh was, I made up my mind to taste it. On Sunday, June the 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street, brought you pot cheese, 
strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her. The gruesome letter went on to describe in horrifying detail how Grace was murdered and roasted in the oven. Police investigated the letter, and on its envelope was a small emblem with the letters NYPCBA, the New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association. A janitor there had taken some stationery home with him, but left it in his rooming house when he moved out. The landlady identified the room's new tenant. His name was Albert Fish. But he would soon have many names. The Brooklyn Vampire, the Werewolf of Wisteria, the Moon Maniac, and the Gray Man. Born on May 19, 1870, in Washington, D.C., Hamilton Howard Fish was the youngest of four surviving children. He wished to be called Albert after his brother, who had died. Albert's father, Randall, was 75 years old at the time of his birth, and his mother, Ellen, who suffered from mental illness, including hallucinations, was just 32. There was a history of mental illness in the Fish family. An uncle suffered from mania, and at least three other relatives were diagnosed with mental illnesses. On October 16, 1875, Albert's father died of a heart attack when he was just five years old. Unable to care for the children on her own, his now widowed mother sent Albert and his three siblings to St. John's Orphanage. It was there that he developed an obsession with sadomasochism. The caretakers at the orphanage not only beat the children regularly, they also encouraged the children to abuse each other. But while the other children suffered, Albert Fish began to enjoy the physical pain. I was there till I was nearly nine, and that's where I got started wrong. Albert Fish later recalled. We were unmercifully whipped. I saw boys doing many things they should not have done. Albert began to associate pain with sexual pleasure. By the time his mother became mentally and financially stable enough to bring her children home in 1880, the damage had already been done, not only to Albert, but to his siblings as well. One brother would go on to be confined to a mental institution. His sister would go on to be diagnosed with a, quote, mental affliction. Once home, Albert Fish continued to administer self-inflicted beatings and began experimenting with sexual self-mutilation, embedding needles into his genitals and flogging himself with a nail-studded paddle. 
In 1882, at age 12, he began a relationship with a telegraph boy who introduced him to the sexual practices of urolagnia and calprophagia, the consumption of human urine and feces. On the weekends, Albert became a voyeur, visiting public baths so that he could watch other boys undress. Then he started writing obscene letters to women, whose names and addresses he found in classified ads. In 1890, 20-year-old Albert Fish moved to New York City, where he prostituted himself and his crimes against children began. Albert was no longer satisfied with inflicting pain on himself. He became obsessed with inflicting pain on others, luring adolescent boys from their homes to rape and torture them. A nail-studded paddle was his preferred instrument of pain. In 1898, Albert Fish married a woman his mother had introduced him to, 18-year-old Anna Mary Hoffman. Albert was working as a house painter at the time, and throughout the year of his marriage, he continued to molest children, mostly boys, younger than age six. Albert and Anna would go on to have six children of their own. Albert, Anna, Gertrude, Eugene, John, and Henry. In 1910, while working as a house painter in Delaware, Albert met 19-year-old Thomas Kedden, and the two began a sadomasochistic relationship. It is unclear if Thomas Kedden was a willing participant. In later descriptions of the affair, Albert Fish would imply that Thomas Kedden was intellectually disabled. Ten days into the affair, Albert lured Thomas to an old abandoned farmhouse, where he tortured him for two weeks. Albert tied Thomas up and cut off half of his penis. I shall never forget his scream, Albert would later recall or the look he gave me. Albert had every intention of killing Thomas Kedden, cutting up his body and taking it home with him. But he worried that the hot weather might spoil his plan and draw too much attention to him. So instead, he poured peroxide on Thomas's wound, wrapped it in a Vaseline-coated handkerchief, left a $10 bill, kissed him goodbye, and left. Took the first train I could get back home, he said. Never heard what become of him, or tried to find out. In January of 1917, Albert's wife, Anna, left him and the children for another man. Albert's mental illness was getting worse. Like his mother, he began having auditory hallucinations. His self-harm became more intense, 
from pressing more and more needles into his groin and abdomen to stuffing wool covered in lighter fluid into his anus and setting it on fire. On one occasion, he wrapped himself in the carpet because John the Apostle told him to do it. Albert involved his own children in his sadomasochism as well. Though he never molested or harmed them himself, he instructed them and their friends to beat him with a nail-studded paddle. As his obsession with cannibalism developed, Albert began to eat raw meat, sometimes serving it to his children. By 1919, his obsession with torture and cannibalism had escalated to kidnapping and murder. Albert began to hunt for vulnerable children, intellectually disabled orphans or homeless black children, kids who he believed would not be missed. Albert would later claim at his trial, commanding him to torture and mutilate children with what he called his, quote, implements of hell, a meat cleaver, a butcher knife, and a small handsaw. Sometimes he procured his victims by looking through advertisements in local papers seeking someone to perform housework, or by young men looking for work themselves. It was through one such advertisement, in May of 1928, that Albert chanced upon Grace Budd. But the little girl wasn't Albert Fish's target. It was her older brother that he had intended as his victim. In the Sunday edition of the New York World, Edward Budd advertised his services. Young man, 18, wishes position in the country. Edward Budd, 406 West 15th Street. On May 28, 1928, under the false name Frank Howard, 58-year-old Albert Fish called on the Budd family in their Manhattan home. His intention was to lure Edward on the promise of farm work upstate, but when he saw 10-year-old Grace, he changed his plans. Albert told the Budd family that he happened to be in town to attend his young niece's birthday party and asked Grace if she would like to come along. Grace's parents agreed, and Albert Fish left with Grace, dressed in her Sunday best, and took her to an abandoned house that he had intended for her brother. I took her to an empty house in Westchester I had already picked out, Albert said in his letter to Grace's mother. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wildflowers. I went upstairs and stripped all my clothes off. I knew that if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When I was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in a closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run downstairs. I grabbed her and she said she would tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked. How she did kick, bite, and scratch. I choked her to death, then cut her in small pieces so that I could take my meat to my rooms, cook it, and eat it. How sweet and tender 
her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her, though. I could have, had I wished. She died a virgin. When police traced the letter to 66-year-old Albert Fish and arrested him, Albert confessed to the murder in detail. Albert told them that it, quote, never even entered his head to rape the little girl, but said that while kneeling on Grace's chest and strangling her, he did have two involuntary ejaculations. Albert's criminal record revealed that he had recently been arrested for, quote, sending an obscene letter to a woman who answered an advertisement for a maid. He was subsequently sent to Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital, but was released within a year, a failure for which the hospital would later face intense criticism. In addition to Grace's murder, Albert Fish enthusiastically confessed to dozens more, claiming to have, quote, had a child in every state. One of them was a four-year-old boy named Billy Gaffney who disappeared in Brooklyn on February 11, 1927, while playing with his three-year-old neighbor. That child told police that the boogeyman took Billy and described him as a slender elderly man with gray hair and a gray mustache. Billy was never seen again. It was only after Albert Fish's arrest that a motorman on a Brooklyn trolley line came forward to identify him as the nervous old man that he had seen the same day that Billy had disappeared. On February 11, 1927, the motorman, Joseph Meehan, had witnessed an old man trying to quiet a little boy who was sitting next to him on the trolley crying for his mother. The man then dragged the boy off the trolley. Albert Fish gleefully confessed to Billy's murder in as much shocking detail as he had confessed to Grace's. I brought him to the Riker Avenue dumps. There is a house that stands alone not far from where I took him. I took the boy there, stripped him naked, and tied his hands and feet, and gagged him with a piece of dirty rag I picked out of the dump. Then I burned his clothes, threw his shoes in the dump, then I walked back and took the trolley to 59th Street at 2 a.m. and walked from there home. Next day, about 2 p.m., I took tools, a good heavy cat of nine tails, homemade, short handle, cut one of my belts in half, slit these halves in six strips about eight inches long. I whipped his bear behind till the blood ran from his legs. I cut off his ears, nose, slit his mouth from ear to ear, gouged out his eyes. He was dead then. I stuck the knife in his belly and held my mouth to his body and drank his blood. Then I cut him up. I came home with my meat. I had the front of his body I liked best. I made a stew out of his ears, nose, pieces of his face, and belly. I put onions, carrots, turnips, celery, salt, and pepper. It was good. I put strips of bacon on each cheek of his behind and put them in the oven. I never ate any roast turkey 
that tasted half as good as his sweet, fat, little behind did. I ate every bit of the meat in about four days. Like Grace, Billy's remains were never found. But one other confirmed victim was. In July of 1924, a young boy, nine-year-old Francis McDonnell, disappeared while playing with his brother and a group of friends on Staten Island. When he failed to come home, his parents reported him missing, and a search was organized. His body was found in the woods near his home a short time later. He had been sexually assaulted and strangled with his own suspenders. Part of his legs and abdomen had been stripped of their flesh. Francis McDonald's friends told the police that he was taken by an elderly man with a gray mustache. His mother, Anna, said that she had seen the same man earlier that day. He came shuffling down the street, mumbling to himself and making queer motions with his hands. She told reporters, I saw his thick gray hair and his drooping gray mustache. Everything about him seemed faded and gray. Her description led the press to dub the child's murderer the Gray Man. Following Albert Fish's arrest, a man from Staten Island came forward to identify him as the man who had tried to lure his then eight-year-old daughter into the woods, not far from where Francis was taken that very same week. The girl, by now in her late teens, identified Albert Fish as the Gray Man. Albert at first denied killing the boy, but later confessed, admitting that he had intended to dismember him, but he thought he heard someone approaching and fled. Albert was also tied to the 1932 murder of a 15-year-old girl named Mary O'Connor, whose mutilated body was found in some woods near a house that Fish had been painting shortly after his release from Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital. But of the dozens of murders Albert was accused of and confessed to, police were only able to verify three with evidence. And on March 11, 1935, the trial of Albert Fish began. His defense argued that he was innocent by reason of insanity. They described him as a psychiatric phenomenon, noting that nowhere in legal or medical records had there ever been another individual who possessed so many sexual abnormalities. Psychiatrists listed his sexual fetishes as including sadism, masochism, flagellation, exhibitionism, voyeurism, peakerism, cannibalism, coprophagia, europhagia, hemotilagnia, pedophilia, necrophilia, and infibulation. One psychiatrist who examined Fish said, quote, There was no known perversion that he did not practice and practice frequently. Nearly 30 needles were found in Albert's groin area 
after he told a psychiatrist that they were there. But the manager from Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital disagreed that Albert Fish was insane. He testified that these were common perversions and that Fish was, quote, no different from millions of other people, some very prominent and successful, who suffered from the very same perversions. Doctors Perry Lichtenstein and Charles Lambert came to similar conclusions. And so did the jury. After a 10-day trial, Albert Fish was found guilty and sentenced to death by electrocution. The following morning, the Daily Mirror ran a large front-page photograph of Albert Fish being led to prison. The caption read, quote, Parents will breathe easier. In his book, The Show of Violence, Dr. Frederick Wortham described meeting Albert Fish in his cell at Sing Sing. Wortham was surprised at how, quote, meek, gentle, benevolent, and polite Albert seemed. If you wanted someone to entrust your children to, he said, he would be the one you would choose. Albert told Dr. Wortham, quote, I have no particular desire to live. I have no particular desire to be killed. It is a matter of indifference to me. I do not think I am altogether right. Dr. Wortham asked if he meant that he was insane. Not exactly, Albert replied. I never could understand myself. I always had a desire to inflict pain on others and to have others inflict pain on me. I always seemed to enjoy everything that hurt. While awaiting his execution at Sing Sing, Albert Fish was given writing materials in order to record his final statements and the details of his crimes. They have never been released. Albert Fish's attorney, Jack Dempsey, said after reading them that he would never show them to anyone, calling Fish's notes, quote, the most filthy string of obscenities that he had ever read. At 11.06 p.m. on January 16, 1936, Albert Fish went to the electric chair. It will be the supreme thrill, he told the guards. The only one I haven't tried. This has been Murder Minute. For True Crime Anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Stereo at Murder Minute.